1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 through 11. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you, or even spend the winter, so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits." But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Hear the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, this is Richard Scarry's What Do People Do All Day? Do, you, do uh, some of you households have this book, What Do People Do All Day? I see some hands. I see some hands. These are, these are wonderful books. Fascinating. So he's a, he's a brilliant illustrator, great storyteller. Uh, so this is, uh, this is about busy town. So he's got kind of an introductory picture. It says, this is busy town. My, what a nice town. And then you turn, turn to the page, turn the page to the actual story. He's got all kinds of compelling little illustrations of animals doing their things, trying to explain to little kids what, what is it that actually people do all day. And there's all kinds of things people do all day, right? He says some workers work indoors, some work outdoors, some work up in the sky, and some work underground. Some workers always do their work at the same place. Others travel from place to place to do their jobs. What does your daddy do? What does your mommy do? And what do you do? Are you a good helper? I won't read the whole thing. <laughs> I did notice, though, he, he finishes with discussing the bakers, and especially <laughs> Abel Baker Charlie. So Charlie's not a name we considered, but we could have. We could have called him Abel Baker Charlie. But the point of that is it's a picture of a busy town. My, what a nice town. And the reason uh, that came to mind is as I was thinking about 1 Corinthians 16, in some ways, that's the impression you get. What a busy church. My, what a nice church. And God is holding up this busy church, and really a picture not just of an individual church, which is in Corinth, but the church at large, the body of Christ in action. And in some ways, God wants us to see that, yes, it was a busy church, and yours should be as well. These were people busy about the kingdom of God. You should be as well. This is the last of the series, so we've been thinking about this idea of being God's people. So the first sermon was called Being God's People, and really, it's an appropriate title for this last sermon as well, so we're going to call it Being God's People as well. And so throughout this entire series, we've seen all kinds of uh, uh, truths that God has held up, all kinds of commandments that have been laid upon us, encouragements, warnings, threats. Uh, There's been some deep waters of theology we've had to wade through or try to wade through. That's a mixed metaphor, isn't it? You can't plumb the depths of deep waters. Anyway, 
lots of difficult theology we've had to wrestle through. We've been compelled to worship like God's people, to live like God's people, to walk in sexual purity like God's people. And now here we are at the close of the letter. And it's clearly that this isn't a perfunctory close. You know, it's the end of a letter. I always say the same thing at the end of a letter. So sincerely, Daniel, or sincerely, the Apostle Paul. You know, I'm going to pull out my chat GPT, plug in a couple of parameters, and just spit out some generic, totally generic letter closing. That's not what's going on here. This is inspired and inspiring to the last word. And so we don't want to doze out just because we're in those, all those details. All those throwaway details are not throwaway details when it comes to the ending of letters in the New Testament. God is continuing to tell us things. So what does it look like to be God's people? You know, this is, this is, the, this is God's version not with, with no illustrations. It's all words. But this is God's version of what do people do all day in the church? What does it look like to be God's people? Well, number one, they're concerned for the poor. Number two, they're hard at work for the kingdom of God. Number three, they're unwavering in strength and love. And then number four, they're committed to the Savior and to his grace. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your desire for us to be transformed. Your desire for us is not for us to simply leave here defeated, condemned, certainly not self-condemned, but your desire for us is to be transformed. And so we pray, Lord, that you would use the means of grace of your scriptures, your inspired word to transform us. Give us ears to hear, Lord, hearts to receive your word. Change our thinking, change our lives, change our behaviors as we need to. And where we need to be encouraged, encourage us. Lord, as Paul's going to tell us, he's going to wish us grace, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And we pray that the grace of the Lord Jesus would be with us as we hear this word and as we leave this place this morning. Continue your work in our hearts and lives. And give us a zeal to be part of the work, not opposing it, but part of the work you want to do in our hearts and lives. And just as John encouraged us earlier uh, about mission, we do pray that this busy church that we're going to read about and be informed about, we pray that it would inspire us to be on mission as we live our lives. Whether we're in a classroom or driving a truck or whatever it is that we do, Lord, we pray that you would make us busy as those who care about the kingdom of God and, and others being brought into it. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Point one, concern for the poor. Being God's people means we're going to be concerned for the poor. So Paul launches immediately into this, this mention of a collection for the poor. Verse one, now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so also, so you also are to do. There's no introduction to that. He just, he, he talks as if they know what he's talking about. And so we can assume that when he was in Corinth, building the church in Corinth, that he was explaining to them the need for the saints back in Jerusalem. And so as he did with all the Gentile churches that he was planting, he took up collections and he wanted to bless the poor in Jerusalem. Now, in Romans 15, we get a clear picture of this collection. Romans 15 is written more or less uh, at the same time uh, as, 1, as 1 Corinthians 16. And in 
Romans 15, he says this. At present, however, I am going to Jerusalem, bringing aid to the saints. For Macedonia and Achaia have been pleased to make some contribution for the poor among the saints at Jerusalem. For they were pleased to do it, and indeed they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they ought also to be of service to them in material blessings. Now, Paul's saying a lot in that, in that description there. The Jerusalem church, the Jews, the Old Testament promises were fulfilled in the church, in us. So we, we share in the spiritual blessings that come from the Jews. When we come to Christ, we are sharing in the spiritual blessings that first came to the Jews. And therefore, Paul's saying, how appropriate is it that you would then turn around and bless them in material ways? So you're blessed in the greater way spiritually. Why don't you bless them in material ways? And as Paul's doing this, you want to, re- want to remember Paul's biography. You know, if you recall in Galatians chapter 2, Paul's explaining him uh, the, the conversion story he had. God brought him to faith. And then at some point, which is equivalent to Acts chapter 11, he goes back to Jerusalem and he's presenting his gospel to those in, in Jerusalem. Not exactly because he's insecure about his gospel, but he does want some kind of, kind of official validation for his ministry to the Gentiles. And so as those Jews in uh, the, the apostles in Jerusalem are hearing him out. They, they give their validation to his gospel. Yes, indeed, this is the true gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But then they add this other thing. They encourage him. Paul tells us this in Galatians 2. He says, only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. So Paul himself had that apostolic injunction from the Jerusalem apostles to remember the poor. And so what we have here in 1 Corinthians 16 is Paul being faithful to that task. He felt the personal burden to, to, to be responsible for those who were poor to help them as he was able and as others were able. And yet he also had that apostolic injunction and he wanted to be faithful to that task that was given to him. And so he says in these opening verses, the first four verses, four things about giving, giving to the poor in particular, that we don't want to miss. The first one is that this giving to the poor is a part of their public worship, a part of their corporate worship. So as he, as he says, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. That first day of every week would be Sunday, the Lord's Day. The great change in the Bible with the, with the redemptive work of Christ when it comes to the day of worship is that it shifted. For centuries, for over a thousand years, the day of worship for the people of God had been Saturday. And then it shifted to Sunday. Because Jesus was raised from the dead on Sunday, because the Holy Spirit fell on Pentecost on Sunday, and so forever after, Sunday has been the day of worship for Christians. And, it, and then as the day of worship, it's also the day of giving to the poor. In 1,500 years, we get this great confirmation of that in the Heidelberg Catechism, question 103. So they're thinking about the Sabbath day, you know, a, a, new t- a, new, a Christian Sabbath, and the question, this is question 103, the question is asked, what is God's will for you in the fourth commandment? To remember the Sabbath, if you recall. So the answer is, first, that the gospel ministry and education for it be maintained, and that especially on the festive day of rest, I diligently attend the assembly of God's people to learn what God's word teaches, to participate in the sacraments, to pray to God publicly, all three, all three things we've done so far, and then, then fourth, to bring Christian offerings for the poor. In other words, there's a long history of Christians in corporate worship giving to the poor. 
And that's actually a part of our worship as well. We don't take up an offering in a physical sense, although there is a box in the back if you'd like to give that way. But people who give online can give to general tithes and offerings, or you can give to alms. And those alms offerings which come in, that way, uh, when you designate that for your gift, those are particularly for those who are in financial need, some kind of need, the poor. And, so, and a, lot, a lot of times that money is for those in our church, almost always that's for those in our church in a, in a temporary or long-term financial need, and then sometimes uh, the money for the poor goes outside of our church. So it's part of our corporate worship, and then second, it's a regular part of the church's giving. So it's a weekly commitment Paul is talking about. Not just every once in a great while when you have a particular anxious thought and you want to calm your conscience, but regularly, weekly, give to the poor. But this is a proportional offering. We're not all equally able to give beyond tithes and offerings. And so he says, to give as he may prosper. Everyone is to give as he may prosper. In other words, according to your income, according to your ability. Our discretionary money changes seasonally. Uh, family needs change. Financial needs, for the, uh, the practical financial needs in our lives change season to season, sometimes week to week. And so what he's asking for is a proportional giving. Not equal giving, but proportional. So consider what you're able to give and give that. But then we don't want to miss that this is a, this is a I didn't know the best adjective, but we're going to call it connected. This is connected giving. And by that, I just mean that the giving that is being done here is, is giving for saints they are never going to meet. You know, maybe a few people in Corinth are eventually going to make their way to the church in Jerusalem and actually meet these saints that Paul's talking about. But by and large, the people that you're giving to, you will never meet. They're total strangers. You heard about the need through a reliable testimony, which, who is the Apostle Paul, but the giving you give is, is just out of a generous heart for someone I heard was in need, and I want to do what I can for those that I heard that I uh, hear are in need. Now, that has a particular challenge for our day because our ability to hear about financial needs around the world dwarfs so much the ability that they had in the first century church to hear about needs throughout the world. I mean, we can, maybe on a given day, I don't, know, I don't know what your email inbox looks like, but in a given day, certainly in a given week, you can hear about needs literally all over the world, financial needs all over the world. And so there's a prayerful component, there's a wisdom component. We can't give everywhere all the time. It's simply not possible. The need is too great. And so we consider where the Lord wants us to invest and we trust that God is gonna take care of the needs of the others that are out there. So as an application for this point, being concerned for the poor, the first is just to say thank you. Uh, it, is, it has been a lot of years that we've, we've had a financial need in the church that we couldn't meet through the alms that have been given to the church. It's been, I don't know, five or 10 years that, since that's been the case. There's always been need for the people in the church through the giving of this church. And, and, it's, and it's also a common experience actually for people in the church to say, I have some extra money. Is there someone in a particular need so that we can give the money to them or give the money to the church so that they, the church can bless them? So thank you for your faithfulness to live out this, this truth, this, this call for us to be concerned about the needs of the poor. Number two, hard at work for the kingdom of God. If we're going to be God's people, we're going to be hard at work for the kingdom of God. <clears throat> hard at work preaching the kingdom, hard at work praying for people to bow their knees to Christ the king and, they're, and they're in, enter the kingdom. 
And in some ways, this wraps up uh, most of this chapter. And so I'm going to read a bunch of verses here, 5 through 12, and then 15 to 20. 5 through 12, and then 15 to 20. And this is where we get all those mentions of the names and, and the travels and such. So 5 through 12, and then 15 to 20. Paul says that I will visit you after passing through Macedonia, for I intend to pass through Macedonia, and perhaps I will stay with you or even spend the winter so that you may help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits, but I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost, for a wide door for effective work has opened for me, and there are many adversaries. When Timothy comes, see that you put him at ease among you, for he is doing the work of the Lord as I am. So let no one despise him. Help him on his way in peace, that he may return to me, for I am expecting him with the brothers. Now concerning our brother Apollos, I strongly urge him to visit you with the other brothers, but it was not at all his will to come now. He will come when he has opportunity. And then verse 15, now I urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanas were the first converts in Achaia, and that they have devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Be subject to such as these and to every fellow worker and laborer. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus and Achaicus because they have made up for your absence. For they refresh my spirit as well as yours. Give recognition to such people. The churches of Asia send you greetings, Aquila and Prisca. Together with the church in their house send you hearty greetings in the Lord. All the brothers send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. Now when we read these verses, we're reminded once again that this is a letter. Paul's writing a letter as someone who knows the people he's writing to. And the sender and the recipients know each other, and Paul is with some people that the people back in Corinth would have known. But it's not only a private letter. It's also a letter that is given by God to instruct us today. It's God's word as well as being a a personal, private, temporal uh, letter for that day. And so here we get this very vivid picture that being God's people means we are hard at work for the kingdom of God. And there's signs of it all throughout the passage. One way you can see this this people hard at work is all the words connected to work or labor or service or sacrifice. So Paul talks about the effective work that that he's doing in Ephesus. A door for effective work has opened up in Ephesus. He talks about Timothy who's doing the work of the Lord. He he refers to the household of Stephanus. And he refers to them as having devoted themselves to the service of the saints. He calls them leaders to be esteemed and the passage calls, uh, calls, for, for, calls them a fellow worker and laborer. And then you get Aquila and Priscilla. So uh, Priscilla and Prisca are the same person in the New Testament, just different versions of the same name. Aquila and Priscilla are commended because they are because the church meets in their house. You know, whether it's a house church or a portion of a larger church, the church meets in their house. Lots of people hard at work, sacrificing and serving at great personal cost. We'll see that in just a second. You see the hard work in the travel plans. So references to Macedonia, Ephesus, Corinth, Asia. And Asia is not the same Asia that we think about. Uh, you think China, Japan, the Koreas. It's a different place. So Asia at this time is actually what we would call Western Turkey. So it's, it's, that, it's the very Western third of, of what we would call Turkey today. 
So the seven churches listed in Revelation 2 and 3, that's Asia, the, the cities that we're talking about. And in, that, in Asia would be the city of Ephesus. So Ephesus right on the, uh, right on the shore, right on the coast. Now for us, those can be just names. You know, Macedonia, Ephesus, Corinth, Asia. I don't know where those places are. And we might imagine, you know, the map of North Carolina, you know, driving from Wilmington to, to Burlington or something like that, to Swiftfield, to Andrew, to Apex, whatever. As if it's, you know, it's just getting in your car and driving down the road for a couple hundred miles, no problem. I'll get there by, by dinner time, certainly. Even if I break down, I can get there by dinner time. But travel at this time isn't anything like that. So when you're going from Ephesus on the eastern shore of the, of the Aegean Sea up to Macedonia on the northern coast and then down to Corinth, that's a thousand miles by land. <clears throat> or maybe you want to take a boat. So it's an 11-hour ferry ride now, obviously by a motorized ferry that's probably going at a pretty good clip. But travel in the ancient world was nothing like that. It would have been weeks, perhaps even months, given sometimes you would stay over at a certain place. It was expensive, it was dangerous, unpredictable. That's why there's all these words about perhaps, maybe I'll come. I'm thinking about doing this, but don't, you know, don't you know, keep the light on for me necessarily. It could be some months or, or weeks delay. But all of that is being done because of the kingdom of God. All of those people were willing to embrace that cost, to pay that cost, so that the gospel could advance and churches could be built up, so that existing churches could be strengthened, because almost all the talk here is of existing churches, so that existing churches could be strengthened and that new churches would be planted. They were willing to do that. You know, it's, it's hard to put into today's dollars and time, you know, when Timothy is sent back to Corinth and then he'll, he'll return back to Paul, it's thousands of dollars, thousands of dollars that would be implied there in weeks or months of travel. It's significant cost. But they were willing to do that because they were hard at work for the kingdom of God. Aquila and Prisca are worth a moment of comment just because they're such a fascinating couple. If you ever want to do a, a, an interesting word search, just search on Aquila and just look at all the places where Aquila and, Pris and Prisca or Priscilla pop up. We first meet them in Corinth in Acts 18. So they're tent makers that are sent out of uh, Claudius. There's, a, there's a, a persecution of the Jews in Rome so they leave Rome and get to Corinth. And in God's providence, they meet Paul. So Aquila and Priscilla are professional tent makers. They meet Paul in Corinth. And they're saved. They're converted by Paul's ministry. And they begin to work together from that point forward. So that's, that's Aquila and Priscilla in Corinth. They're actually going to go to Ephesus with Paul be part of his, his apostolic uh, entourage. They're going to end up in Ephesus. They're with Paul as he's writing this letter. But not very far from now, or not very separated from this point, he writes the book of Romans. And when he writes the book of Romans, Aquila and Priscilla are actually in Rome. Now again, this is not just jumping on a plane and two hours later you, you go from Ephesus to Rome. This is significant cost, significant effort, significant time. So when he writes the book of Romans, he says to greet uh, Aquila and Priscilla who are in Rome. And he calls them, you know, my beloved co-workers. And then at the end of Paul's life, 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says to Timothy, so at this point in his, at the, in his life, as he's anticipating being martyred, he's in Rome for the second time of his, uh, facing imprisonment. 
He doesn't expect to be released this time. He expects to be killed. He's writing to Timothy, his last epistle, and he says to greet Prisca and Aquila. And likely at that point, they're with Timothy back in Ephesus. So this is, in some ways, a very normal husband and wife. Probably they, had, they each had exceptional gifts. It seems actually like maybe Priscilla had especially exceptional gifts. She's the one who, in the ordering, at first it's Aquila and Priscilla, but then after people get to know the couple, they actually mention Priscilla first in almost every case. So it's Priscilla and Aquila. Fascinating little uh, transfer there. And then also it's Priscilla and Aquila who pull Apollos aside, the great Apollos, the, the rhetorical, rhetorically gifted man. They pull pa- Apollos aside as he's preaching and they're basically like, you're, you're doing a great job. Thank you for serving. However, you're not preaching Jesus correctly. And so they explain to Apollos the way, <laughs> the way of Christ more accurately. And then Apollos becomes a a powerful co-worker for Paul. Hard work, great sacrifice, investing their own lives in the kingdom of God. That's what you get in these, in these verses. So I think one way that we can own this text is just to take a few minutes today or this week, and, and I mean literally a few minutes, take three minutes, and just quiet yourself before the Lord and just tell him, Lord, I give it all to you. I give myself to you. I give everything I have. It is all yours. Take it and use it however you will. Yeah, that, that took 30 seconds, but just enough time where you can be sincere as you're talking and focus as you're talking. The, the noise of the world is, is kind of silence for just a moment and just pray to the Lord. Offer everything you are. Lord, it's yours. How do you want me to serve you? And sometimes the Lord gives very specific responses to that. You need to begin a new major at school, a new ministry at church. And then sometimes the answer is you need to do the same things you've been doing in a different way. You need to be more godly, perhaps. You need to be more focused, more prayerful, more dependent on him, more dependent on the spirit. Sometimes it's just going back into the exact same place you were before as a different person. And that's the answer to that, the answer to that prayer. But I don't know what the answer is gonna be. So present that to the Lord. Lord, I just give it all to you. It's yours. Do with it what you want. So that's the second thing. We're hard at work for the kingdom. And then third, unwavering and strength and love. Right in the middle of these verses, all kinds of practical details, commendable details we don't want to miss, but, but nonetheless details, personal greetings. He drops this, just this uh, just powerful barrage of imperatives that we don't want to miss in verses 13 and 14. And this is unwavering and strength and love. Verses 13 and 14, he says, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. Just like a machine gun blast. Be be watchful. Stand firm in the faith. Act like men. Be strong. Let all that you do be done in love. And in a culture like ours, we do have to say, he doesn't mean literally act like a man. So if you're a woman, he's not telling you to act like a man. That's not what's being said here. the, The word is... I mean, as a verb, as a basic verb, that is what it's saying, to act like men. But what it means is to be courageous, be strong, be courageous. 
We'll say more about that in a second. So commentators, a lot of times as they're, as they're reviewing these verses, compare them to a general, what a general might say to his army. Now, the general's not going to say, stand firm in the faith, and the general's also not going to call his troops to love, but there is something soldier-like about this. So one commentary just underscored in this discussion, following Christ is not for cowards. Following Christ is not for cowards. And then the quote on the screen, this is from an older commentary. In five clear and crisp charges, Paul gathers together the duties which he has been inculcating, the duties of a Christian soldier. Four of these have reference to spiritual foes and perils, while the last sums up their duty to one another. They are an army in the field, and they must be alert, steadfast, courageous, strong, and in all things, united. So these five crisp, clear charges. The first one is to be watchful. And be watchful has an eschatological sense. Be watchful because Christ is coming back. Be watchful because the days are short. Be watchful because our enemies are everywhere. And then the second one is to stand firm in the faith. You know, it's not a call to have a strong faith, though we, of course we should. It has to do with what we're standing, the kind of thing that we're believing in. Believe in the right thing. Stand strong in that thing. The faith. The true faith. The faith that declares Christ crucified. So it's a call to not compromise the truth. Don't compromise the gospel. Preserve the true, authentic, saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. Stand firm in the faith. And then we get the third and fourth commands. We'll bring these together. Act like men, be strong. Most translations, if you don't have an ESV, most translations use be courageous. Be courageous, be strong. Very fine translation. The ESV has kind of... Has, Echoed the, the King James, I think, quit you like men, I believe it's King James, quit you like men. Which is, you know, that doesn't mean quit like a man. All men are quitters. That's not what's being said there. It's 1600s for act like men, which is what the ESV has preserved. And so there's a unique... Um, there's a unique way where you, you can make this absolutely genderless. So it just means be courageous. That's all it means. But I think we miss something if we go that far with translating this word because there is something uniquely necessary for men when it comes to courage that we also don't want to miss. Women have to be courageous in womanly ways, for sure. However, a lot of people depend on men being courageous. A lot of those people in your life depend on you being courageous. So 2 Samuel has this great, it's uh, in the Greek Old Testament, the same uh, phraseology is used. So this is 2 Samuel 10. So Israel is about to fight the Syrians. And right before the battle, Joab, the commander of the Israelite army, is talking to Abishai, his brother, who's also a commander in the, in the Israelite armor, uh, sorry, army, they don't know what's going to happen. Joab doesn't know, are our you know, troops massively superior or are we going to get 
obliterated. They have no idea. But Joab is talking to his brother, fellow commander, and he says this, be of good courage and let us be courageous for our people and for the cities of our God and may the Lord do what seems good to him. And I I think there's something uniquely manly about that. A man has to be courageous for the people that he's responsible for, for the cities of God. And, that, and a courageous man knows he has no idea what's going to come. And so he's going to pray, may the Lord do what seems good to him. And a much, uh, this, kind of, this is, this is a, to illustrate the difficulty of, of courage at times, but um, Ann and I were out for a walk um, a week ago or just a couple weeks ago, and we were walking at night, <clears throat> And we were walking a, a, a wooded path behind our house. And it's, like I said, it's dark. It had been raining. So I had my phone out, the flashlight. You know, you're watching the ground. Um, there's a lot of sticks. There's a lot of sticks that look like snakes. <laughs> but then every once in a while, there's an actual copperhead right in the path. And so we're walking along, and there was a copperhead. And so I happened to see it. No problem, grabbed Ann, stopped her. And so, all was good. We walked we, uh, widely around the copperhead. Then amazingly, the next night, so we're walking that very same path, and obviously much more vigilant that time, right? We had just seen a copperhead the day before. And so, we see another copperhead, but this time, the distance was much closer, and the copperhead was much bigger, and the copperhead... Somehow, we, I don't know what happened. I don't know if we hit a stick which hit the copperhead, but he, he knew we were there and did not appreciate us taking up his space. And so he was reared up. But again, the Lord is gracious. Pulled Ann back. No copperhead biting story to, to close out this uh, sermon illustration. You know, we've known people who got bit by copperheads in their lower leg, and it's, it's, it's not a pleasant thing. <clears throat> but that second night, when I knew what to expect... I could be watchful. And so there was, a, there was a courage to it, perhaps. But there was certainly an alertness to it. But what's, but what's really hard about being a man in a world like ours is you don't know how the challenge is going to come. If you knew every time it's going to be a copperhead in a path, you would live alert when you're on any, any wooded path. I'm going to live alert. But, you know, there you are prepared for a direct assault from the enemy, and he sends... COVID-19. I didn't see COVID-19 coming. None of us did. And a lot of us were challenged in very unexpected ways. It was very, compl- it was very complicated, very, very difficult. The kind of courage that we, we needed for COVID-19 depended a lot of us, uh, for each of us, on our relative positions uh, in COVID-19. But we didn't see that coming. You know, you prepare for the COVID on, copperhead on the path, and actually, the real challenge is you had a very bad argument with your wife, and you said a lot of really terrible things that you need to take back and undo. And the kind of courage it takes to do that, you didn't see coming. You were prepared for the copperhead. And then the pandemic came, and then you were ready for the next pandemic. I'm ready. You know, <clears throat> whatever you thought about the pandemic, you're ready this time. Whatever your response was and you regret, it's going to be better this time, whatever it was but you weren't prepared for the challenge that actually came. 
There's all kinds of ways we're called to be godly and courageous and vigilant. And some we expect and some we don't. But in all of those, act like men, be strong for our people, for the cities of our God. May the Lord do what seems good to him. And then Paul closes this barrage with an unexpected twist. You know, we can't just be the robotic tough guy. You know, if, if, if you stop with the first four commands, you're just going to be the robotic tough guy. But when you get to the fifth one, and let all that you do be done in love. You didn't see that one coming. The call is to agape. All those, all those ex- exhortations in chapter 13 about what true Christian love is, you're called to do that as well as stand firm, be alert, act like men, be strong. We're not choosing one path or the other. One of them isn't manly and the other is feminine. They're both on all of us. But they are on all of us, respective of whether we're a man or a woman. So that's the third one, to be unwavering and strength and love. And then the fourth and last is to be committed to the Savior and his grace. Verses 21 through 24. Last paragraph of the epistle. Paul writes, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So in verse 21, we see Paul take up the pen himself. So up until verse 21 in chapter 16, Paul's been working through a secretary, an amanuensis. Very, very common practice in the ancient world. Writing was very complicated. Uh, it's not that Paul didn't know how to write, but the actual physical uh, getting of parchments and inks and, and preserving documents and all of that was a very elaborate and expensive process, so not everyone could do it themselves. They didn't have the resources. So Paul's using an amanuensis. He, he's, uh, one way or another, he's working with that amanuensis to get all those 16 and almost... Uh, 16 complete chapters and then as if we would take a document and sign our own name in, in blue ink and, and as opposed to the, the black ink of the document or whatever Paul takes up the pen himself and he's in verse 21 telling the readers I Paul am now writing to you with my own hands I Paul write this greeting with my own hand and in maybe five of his epistles he does that, that, that exact same kind of thing and where you and I might just sign our name love ya Daniel, Paul's like, I'm just not done yet. There's more to say. And so he gives three verses that, where each of them is significant. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. Amen. So we're just going to wrap all, that, all those ideas together in being committed to the Savior and to his grace. Paul uses the word accursed in verse 22. Accursed is anathema, anathema, Greek word, anathema. And then he says, our Lord come, which is maranatha, maranatha. So anyone who has no love for the Lord, let him be anathema, maranatha. That's the way, that's the way it works in the original language. Maranatha is, a, is a, an Aramaic prayer, actually. So a few times there's Aramaic that bursts through uh, the, into our New Testament. So places like Abba, Abba, Father, Abba is an Aramaic word. 
Well, so is Maranatha. Come, Lord, our Lord, come. So in that verse 22 there, Paul compresses a lot of theology. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Our Lord, come. And we want to read, if anyone has no love for the Lord correctly, you don't want to read that as if, uh, um, if your love isn't good enough, you're going to be accursed. That's not what's being said here. You want to read this as you either have it or you don't. This is a saving kind of love for the Lord. It's just another way of talking about being a Christian. Christians love the Lord. Yes, they should love him more. And yes, they should love the church and other Christians more. We know that. But that's Christian growth. That's sanctification. That's not how you're saved. How you're saved is you love the Lord. And that's, it's, that's either have it or don't. It's binary. It's not a matter of growing. You either have it or you don't. After you have it, yes, you're going to grow and you need to grow. But the point is it's saving. It's saving what's being described there. Good, good example of this is in John 21. So after Peter has denied Christ three times, heroic, epic, famous failure, human failure. Peter has denied Christ three times. The whole entire Christian world knows it. And they've been talking about it for 2,000 years. It's, it, was, it was a public failure. I mean, of, of all public failures, that was, that was up there. But in John 21, the apostles are, are um, back reunited with Christ. And then Jesus pulls Peter aside and he has a private conversation with him. And his first question is, do you love me? Peter says, yes, you know I do. Second question, do you love me? Yes, I do. But then Jesus asked Peter the third time, do you love me? And, 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 Peter, and John tells us that Peter was grieved in his heart. He knew exactly why Jesus was asking that third time. And so in some ways, what Jesus is asking him is, Peter, you just denied me three times. Do you love me? And what's wonderful is Peter doesn't change his answer. Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. I'm aware, I I denied you three times. You told me I would. I said I wouldn't, and then I did. And yet, I love you. I love you. That's the kind of love that we're talking about. It's a love that needs to grow. You need to grow in your love for Christ so that you don't deny Jesus in those kinds of ways. However, when you do deny Jesus, it doesn't mean you don't have any love for Christ. It might just mean you just need to grow. You need to grow in your love for Christ. That's what Paul is talking about here. It's a love that's present, but it needs to grow. And for those with a true love for the Lord, that's where where we say, oh, our Lord, come. Maranatha. Come, oh Lord. There's no comment, there's no elaboration, and there doesn't need to be. The coming of Christ is everything we long for and hope for, and in some ways even dream about. It's the end of the battle. It's the, it's the end of being attacked perpetually by the devil. It's the end of relational conflicts. It's the end of sin. It's the end of sickness. It's the end of living in a fallen world. That's what it means for us when our Lord comes. So yes, Maranatha. But for those who aren't in Christ. For those who don't have that kind of saving love for the Lord, you're accursed. 
So Christ's return for the people of God means our trials are finally over. They are truly over. But for those who aren't God's people, your trials will be multiplied a million times and forever. You know, Christ's return for the people of God means our torments end instantly, instantly. But for those who aren't God's people, their torments are just beginning. Christ's return for the people of God means the end of experiencing life in a fallen world. It's over. No more life in a fallen world. But, if, but for those who aren't God's people, his return means the end of living in a, in a world that has some goodness in it. So if you don't belong to Christ, turn to him. Be saved. And if you don't know how, tell him that. Tell him, Lord, I, I want to be saved, but I don't know how. Help me. Turn away from sin. Turn away from your rebellion against God. Bow before Christ as your king. At some point, just take a private moment, physically, literally bow. I'm not saying you have to do that to be saved, but sometimes it's helpful for our bodies to express what's in our hearts. Just physically bow before him and say, you are my king. I give it all to you. What we said in these final words is, is us being committed to the Savior and to his grace. So we've, we've said a few things about being committed to the Savior, but now grace. Paul says in verse 23, the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And all 13, he writes 13 epistles that are in our New Testament, and all 13, he has a final word of grace. It doesn't matter how bad it was in the middle of the, of the, of the epistle. When he gets to the end of the epistle, it's grace. You know, I'm signing off now. I'm, I'm entrusting you to the grace of the Lord Jesus. I'm not with you, but the grace of the Lord Jesus is. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. And so for Corinthians, as, as is true for almost all of his letters, he opens and he closes with grace. So you can see this in verse 1-3 and then in 16-23. Right after, right after opening his letter, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he closes with the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. So grace to you at the front. We're beginning this endeavor together, this epistle that I'm gonna write and you're gonna read. And then as he signs off on the epistle, he prays that grace would be with them. And grace, a lot of ways to define grace, but in, the, in Great is Thy Faithfulness, we sang this line, strength for today and bright hope for tomorrow. Well, there's a, there's a lot worse ways to define grace than that. That's what grace is. It's strength for today, it's bright hope for tomorrow. But that's not his last word. His last word is Paul expressing his love for the Corinthians and he says, my love be with you. My love be with, all, with you all in Christ Jesus. And probably that should be a statement and not a, not a wish. It should be a statement. My love is with you. My love is with you all in Christ Jesus. In other words, I love you, Corinthians. Yes, I've said some hard words here. But as I said in chapter 13, love rejoices with the truth. My love is with you. My love is with you, amen. So being, being God's people means being concerned from the poor, hard at work for the kingdom of God, being unwavering in strength and love, and it means being committed to the Savior and his grace. So just to re restate my earlier encouragement, some point today or this week, take a few minutes, just lift your hands to the Lord and say, Lord, it's all yours, I give it all to you, do with it what you want. I give my life to you. I give my relationships to you, my finances, whatever small or great things I have, I give it all to you. Do with it what you want. 
But as we close, I wanna do something we did in the first sermon in the series, and that's read a, a prayer together. So if you're able, please stand. I believe we have this. So this is a fitting way to take all of the, the truth and the, and the exhortations and commandments of Corinthians and Lord saying, and, and saying to the Lord, Lord, help me to live this way. It's also um, said with an awareness that next Sunday, it's a little bit arbitrary, we, we understand it, but next Sunday starts kind of the first Sunday of our church year. Sunday, or September to August is our church planning year. And so we, we think of the summer as our planning time, but September is where we launch a lot of things. So next Sunday begins a lot of new things. And so in some ways, this prayer is said with that in mind as well. Lord, help us as we go into next year together as a church, as your people. Help us to bear good fruits. So let's read this together. Uh, John, you can bring the worship team up as I do this. So a covenant with God. So I am no longer my own, but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing. Put me to suffering. Let me be employed for you or laid aside for you, exalted for you or brought low for you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Let me have nothing. I freely and wholeheartedly yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. And now, glorious and blessed God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, you are mine and I am yours, so be it. And the covenant now made on earth, let it be ratified in heaven. Amen, that's right. Father, we do offer ourselves to you, our lives to you, our gifts to you, our weaknesses to you. We offer our sins to you, our broken relationships to you. The things we boast about, we offer them to you. The things we're afraid of, we offer them to you. Our jobs, our classes, our schooling. Whatever material possessions we have, we offer that to you. Our finances, Lord, we offer those to you. Our time, our energy, our dreams, our visions, we offer those to you. And we pray, Lord, that you would... Let these jars of clay, all these things that are connected to us as jars of clay, we pray that you would use them to your great glory. Use us, Lord. And for those of us who feel inadequate or perhaps in a, in a new way, a lot less adequate than we were, we just pray, Lord, that you would give us grace to continue the fight, to stand firm, to stand firm in the faith to stand strong, to be courageous, and to, and to determine to turn to you for whatever fresh start is needed in our lives. It's simply, it's simply not too late to be used by you, and so we pray that you would use us, Lord. If there's breath in our lungs, it's not too late to be used by you, and so, Lord, use us. Use us, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.